Welcome to the Pod 20, and my guest this week is Johnny Gould, the host of the podcast, Johnny Gould's Jewish State. You know the title, Johnny Gould's Jewish State? It's not a campaign statement, it's a play on words. It's the condition of my Jewish self, as I discover the most courageous, accomplished, interesting people and get their story. We have time together to unpack the big ideas, the challenges, but there's also a theme. It might be a Jewish title, but this is for everyone. The broadcaster Johnny Gould from Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Now, Johnny has worked as a presenter on Al Jazeera, a news network that's been accused of having an Islamic bias. Find out from Johnny if that's caused him any problems with members of the Jewish community. Saruti Bala from the True Crime podcast, Red Handed, will tell us about winning silver at the British Podcast Awards. Actress or actor? How do you describe someone who is female and acts? Find out from the film critic Anna Smith, who is one of the hosts of the Girls on Film podcast. Media personality, journalist and publicist Rob Goldstone will be on to tell us what it's like to be an Englishman living in New York. Hollywood scriptwriter Ken Levine will tell us the real reason why he became a writer. And the US radio personality BJ Shea will talk about the very competitive Seattle radio market that he works in. It's all happening with me, Graham Mack, reminding you that the British government's official advice about this show is, if you can, listen at home. The Pod 20 is heard on podcast radio on DAB in London, the home counties, Manchester and Glasgow, on demand in the USA at talkers.com, around the world on multiple platforms and as a podcast itself. At number 20 this week, it's Desert Island Discs. You can now listen to archive shows and find out what eight tracks, book and a luxury over 2,000 castaways would take to a desert island. At 19... Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Johnny, you're a broadcaster that's done a lot of presenting on Al Jazeera. That network has been accused of having an Islamic bias. Was there any backlash from your Jewish friends or members of the Jewish community? Not from open-minded um, Jewish people. Uh, in fact, <laughs> the producer who brought me in was uh, a, a Jewish woman, and uh, she'd been there for many years, never experienced any anti-Semitism, and... Uh, honestly, let me tell you something. With the news in the last couple of weeks where the United Arab Emirates have made peace with Israel, it's the Al Jazeera organization, which is of that Gulf states environment, looking out to become globalized partners, yeah, reinventing themselves. And it was that environment. Look, I'm not going to say that every single person uh, was on side with me and I was called a disgrace and all this kind of thing. I don't care about that. Actually, I wasn't talking about politics there. I was talking mo mainly about Set Blatter and FIFA. That was my job for them. I had to talk about FIFA and UEFA and the international politics of football. And to be honest, he was an easy target, wasn't he? Set Blatter. So I talked a lot about him. Um, and that was my major role. And there were all sorts of uh, scandals that I was involved in. There was the... Uh, Luis Suarez biting of uh, the shoulder. He did a lot of biting, didn't he, old Suarez? But listen, I had a great association with them. I wish them luck. And what's happening now is a vindication, I think, of uh, building bridges because the UAE has made peace. The first flight 
from Tel Aviv to Abu Dhabi uh, and Oman and Bahrain will follow. Uh, and we are reaching a game-changing peace with the whole of the Arab region. And don't forget, Egypt and Jordan are already peace partners with Israel. And the Egyptian-Israeli deal, which is now 42 years old, survived a Muslim Brotherhood government. And I think that, you know, that significant uh, nugget of information tells you about kind of Israel being, being his to stay and, 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 and kind of being part of it and, and people needing each other. And I think that's, uh, that's the kind of triumph of the last decade. People might not like Benjamin Netanyahu, but he wins election after election. And one of his major triumphs is reaching out to the world and he's reaching out into Eastern Europe with Hungary, with, uh, with, uh, with, with, with Poland, lesser. There, there's been a tricky relationship there over the Holocaust, uh, but with Britain and Germany and Romania, um, you know, the, the world is changing. It's joining up in a post-Brexit way. Um, so, so watch this space, space because I think Jewish State will cover that too. And I hope it just means there's more chance of peace. Because surely that's what every—that's the one common thing that everybody really must want. Johnny Gould, his podcast is called Johnny Gould's Jewish State. It's at number nineteen this week. At eighteen, you're dead to me. The history podcast for people who don't like history. At seventeen, red-handed true crime with Hannah and Saruti. Saruti, congratulations on the silver award at the British Podcast Awards. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, I'm still—I still don't think I've really taken it in in any way it still feels like such a complete shock that that happened uh yeah we're we're just very grateful very grateful now it was the the listeners choice award for for the podcast red-handed so did you campaign and try to get your listeners to vote oh yes definitely definitely (laughs) (laughs) so it wasn't uh it was a surprise in that they actually we actually got as high as we did and we actually got silver place but yeah because the first year because we've been running for about three and a half years now as a podcast and the very first year uh, somehow unbelievably we did not campaign we did not think it was a possibility we got into the top 20 of the listeners choice the very first year then last year we were in the top 10 which felt amazing and this year we thought uh, as long as we can stay in the top 10 that would be amazing and to find out we were second in the country was just absolutely mind-blowing so next year gold See yeah yeah silver this year next year gold. <laughs> well if the trend continues top 20 top 10 silver gold it's, it's gotta happen the data doesn't it's it's doesn't lie, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so we'll see. What is a nice girl like you doing talking about horrible murders? I mean, Grandma, I think nice girls love murder. That's what it is. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. That's what we've found. That is the red-handed brand. Um, no, I think when you look at true crime in general as a genre, it is majority women who are listening to that category. Is it really? Wow. Absolutely. I can say that confidently, that it is predominantly women um, who are the consumers of the true crime genre, whether it's books, whether it's documentaries, whether it is podcasts. And we have about 80% female listenership, um, which is just, which is great because they're the similar age to us. They can relate to us. And I think it's because I guess in a lot of cases, we are the victims of crime, uh, especially murders and things like that. So I don't know. I think there is some sort of maybe self-preservation. The more I know, the more I can protect myself, the morbid fascination with that. Possibly. I don't know. And I also think it's because 
it is just such we as we approach it anyway as a very like uh, intellectual pursuit it's a puzzle it's a mystery why did this happen even if you know who did it mm. why did they do it what were the sort of social or political or cultural aspects feeding into that crime because one of the things with red-handed is we go all over the world and it's fascinating to see the wide variety of different crimes that occur depending on the country that you're in what's more prevalent there's just so many facets to it i think true crime is such a great encapsulation of society and human nature as a whole and i think that's why the general obsession with it anyway especially from the point of view of women i would say so did you and Hannah sit down and go, we're going to do a podcast, what should we do it about? Or did you did you come in from the other side, which is, hey, we both love true crime, we should do a podcast about this? What was the yes. process? It was definitely the latter. Um, but one quick point about Hannah and I is that three and a half years ago, we were very busy not knowing each other. Hannah and I are not sort of childhood friends. Lots of people think that's surprising. If you go back and listen to very early episodes, um, I think there is an episode where I say, oh, my birthday's in October. And Hannah goes, your birthday's in October. My birthday's in October. And people listening were like, how do you not know when your birthdays are? And people think that we've known each other for decades we haven't we met at a party at hannah's house that i was invited to by a friend of mine who was living with her and i just went along i got quite drunk hannah was quite drunk we met there we started talking actually about the murder of uh, jean benet ramsey which is a very famous case yeah. out of the us um yeah. for those of anybody listening who doesn't know um and we i think three years ago it was very rare especially in the uk to meet other people who were listening, not just to podcasts, but who were listening to the very specific true crime podcasts that Hannah and I were listening to. And it was just a bit of a light bulb moment. None of my other friends were listening to podcasts. And after a few drinks, we were like, we could do this. We could possibly even do this better than these. Because a lot of the podcasts we were listening to were male-fronted podcasts as well. And we thought, we've got a completely different perspective. Although we respect these hosts so much and what they do and their grind and the research they do, we've got a different take on some of these cases that they don't approach it from because why would they? They're not women. So that was kind of the basis of why Red Handed started. But we didn't start with a known brand. We didn't know what we were really trying to achieve. We just thought we're both good talkers. We seem to get on well um, and we like true crime. And it was just complete luck that we have the kind of chemistry that we do have. Yeah. Just absolute luck. Well, we're lucky to have Red Handed, which is at number 17 this week on the Pod 20. Saruti will be back next week to talk about the most shocking true crime their podcast ever dealt with. At 16 this week, Off the Menu with Ed Gamble and James Acaster, Ed and James invite special guests into their magical restaurant to choose their favourite starter, main course, side dish, dessert and drink. My guest this week is the host of Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Johnny, your broadcasting career has been vast. You've moved around a lot. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Birmingham. Um, and um, you're, a, you're from the northwest, aren't you, like Jerry? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was born in Liverpool, but grew up in Great Sankey near Warrington is where I grew up. Right, yeah. right, right. But I spent some time in Birmingham. I worked at BRMB for about three years. Yeah. Do you know what? I remember your name there. And that might have been in the 80s and 90s. It was a little bit late. It was the late 90s, actually, yeah. Okay, yeah, because I remember the name. I wasn't there because I was doing all my uh, stewardship and sort of training in the uh, mid-80s as a, as a teenager. 
Um, and I was very, very lucky because I wanted to be a sports reporter. And in those days, local radio was king. And we had great football teams in the West Midlands. I know you have to go back 40 years for that to happen, but we did. We had Aston Villa, who would be... European champions, Aston Villa, yeah. Absolutely. And you'll know, being a, a Merseysider, that we interrupted Liverpool's greatness for two years. We won the league and then the European Cup in the middle of Liverpool's greatness. With a number of Liverpudlian players. Which is all the more ironic. Dennis Mortimer, Peter With, Kenny Swain. But Peter With was a dot worker and grew up under the nose of Liverpool and Everton and played for Southport, but then won the league with Forrest and then won the league with Villa, interrupting Liverpool. He's one of those rich footballing ironies. And I had the privilege of interviewing Peter. What a great man he is. One of my favourite characters in football of all, including Pelé and Maradona and Zidane. A great work ethic. The hero Peter with in, in Villa history. Absolutely adore the man. Um, so, Obviously, BRMB and, and Beacon Radio was where I had my first full-time job in the West Midlands with Wolves and Albion and Villa. And Radio WM was where I cut my teeth and really learned all that kind of BBC kind of training. But, of course, Villa and Albion were good teams. Birmingham have always been rubbish. Um, you, you won't hear me say much good about them. I'm sorry um, about that. You can edit that out later, but I don't care. I'm also the director of the Supporters Trust. I'll, I'll put that in, I've got to put that interest in the, the Aston Villa Supporters Trust. Um, but that's where I started. I cut my teeth there. And then um, after Beacon Radio, I went national. I came down to London and I've been here ever since. Uh, I worked at the BBC World Service with some amazing characters because I was 23 in 1990. There were 70 year old broadcasters who were coming to the end of their careers. And I feel like I've held on to the baton from the kind of the very the very original people who spoke like that. And I swear, I replaced Paddy Feeney on Sports World. And Paddy Feeney is one of those chaps, right from the start, what a nice man uh, Paddy was. And he handed over to me as though I was like his equal. And though I had the same job as him, he might have been, I don't know, 60s or 70s, and I was 23, I never felt like that. I felt I was walking in the shadow of these giants. And, um, you know, I'm really... Really, being a sports guy and being in the same room as these guys has been a real privilege. And, and LBC in the Australian 1990s, when they brought over their news talk, you know, that idea where they argue and it's a whole new thing, which is now prevalent in a lot of radio around the world. Um, so, of course, they brought in all those stars. They brought in Austin Mitchell, who, of course, not only was the MP, but he interviewed Brian Clough and Don Reamy together. Uh, by, it was an amazing, legendary interview. Uh, Viscount Ultrop, um, uh, Charles Spencer uh, was there as well. Angela Rippon, Edwina Curry, another another Liverpudlian Graham. Uh, maybe you don't want to. Maybe you don't want to admit that. I'm not sure. But Edwina. <laughs> but um, but uh, it's been it's been a it's been an amazing amazing journey, and I've met amazing people in Sky News. I became a friend of Eamon's, uh, Eamon Holmes over the years, and worked with Tanya Bryant. I mean, the, the modern day. Um, uh, current broadcasters and legendary broadcasters of the past, all those guys called Mike at LBC, Mike Allen and Mike Dickin, the late Mike Dickin, marvellous man. Mike, Mike Allen, unfortunately, has passed away. I did five years with Robbie Vincent on LBC, who I think is the greatest phone show host of all time. He's doing a show on Jazz FM now with his massive record collection, but they should put him back on the radio as a, uh, as a phone show host because that guy had a command of everything. Honestly, I learned so much from these guys. And being a sports guy in a news talk environment, you sit in the studio with them. It's just, you know, I, I just, I'm just so lucky. 
Um, and I uh, wouldn't mind having a proper daytime job as well now. I think I've got all the, uh, I think I've got all that. Uh, I'd like to say I've got all that experience under my belt, but I've got some of it over my belt as well these days. <laughs> Johnny Gould will find out more about his podcast, Johnny Gould's Jewish State, in a bit. Number 15 on the Pod 20 this week is Girls on Film, the film review podcast hosted by an all-female panel, including the film critic Anna Smith. Anna, help me out here. I spoke to Gemma Moore on this show a few weeks ago about her current film, Host, and I didn't know whether to call her an actress or an actor. What is the correct etiquette these days? It became a bit of an Americanism to say actor, but I think they were probably slightly ahead of us because I can see the logic in just making it not gendered. Yeah. I'm happy to say it, but I generally, if I think someone, if I, if I look at their own profile and they refer to themselves as an actor, yeah, just generally look on their social media. Yeah, I was, I don't know. I didn't mean it as an, and she didn't take it. She took it really well. Obviously she was, she's lovely, but uh, I was, I was a little bit like, and I still don't know whether I got it right or not, but maybe I should just go actor. And that's probably the safest way to go. (laughs) No one's really going to be offended by, by actor, are they? No, no, I don't think so. I think that's safer. Um, I mean, things things quite often change. Like we had um, unconscious bias training um, at the Critics Circle, and there, you know, our trainer said, "The thing is, people are constantly asking what's the most politically correct way to refer to something, and that is constantly changing. So, okay. you know, what might might have been good a year ago is inappropriate now, and it's fine to ask because." You know what? How should we all know? You know how should we all know? So, I always just try to consult people who are experts and, and Google Google it heavily to try to make sure I'm using the right terminology. But you know, it's difficult. It's difficult to keep up, but it's important to try. Well, she is uh, an up and coming uh, British movie actor, but she's also a producer, and she's produced things as well and she's very keen on making sure like the the one there's one i forget the name of it now it's set in a toilet but it's it's an all-female cast and she's very keen on getting that kind of thing right you should get her on the podcast i'm sure she'd love to go on because she's promoting this movie host yeah and she is is that the one the powder room that you're talking about the film there was something it's called the powder room it's it's set in a it's set in a lady's toilet it's it's got like a one word title oh jesus okay she did. She did talk about it, and uh, anyway, she's working on. She's working on a lot of that stuff, and um, she did. She did talk about the underrepresentation of of strong female characters yeah. in yeah. in the movies. But uh, she was great. Interestingly, she, she, the word strong female. Sorry, the, the term strong female is one that's come up as controversial, actually. That's that's a compliment, isn't it? You don't you don't want Bruce Willis to be a weak lead or you know, <laughs> well, yeah. it is complicated, but I think again, it, it was something that was bandied around people saying you need strong female characters. Yes, correct. But then the actresses or actors started to feel that there was some kind of pressure, like, oh, why should it be a strong woman? Why can't she be complex? And so we tend to use the word complex. It's been a discussion we've had with lots of people, including the director Carol Morley on Girls on Film and Emily Mortimer um, came on talking about it as well. She didn't like being called a strong woman. She came on with Dolly Wells and she was saying that, you know, she kind of felt it was kind of one of those labels that put loads of pressure on the actors. And also the viewers, because as women, we just want to see ourselves represented as we are. We can be problematic. In fact, on Girls on Film, we often celebrate depictions of women who aren't idealised, women who are real, women that make mistakes. Like, you know, you look at so many crime thrillers with a 
very flawed male detective yeah. in the he's allowed Autoholic. to have a problem. <laughs> exactly. You know, he's, he treats people terribly, he's rude, you know, all these things, and he's still the hero. But you don't get to see that that much with the Yeah, with the you don't see it. Uh, yeah, you've, that's a very good point. You don't see a female lead who has a substance abuse issue, who is a bad parent. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah but you'll get a male will have yeah. all those uh, qualities using the word in its loosest sense because it isn't quality it's but anyway yeah that's a very very good point it's a very good point we are starting to see it now and that's why we were talking to the director carol morley about it because she made out of blue with patricia clarkson as um a detective with a drink problem and she didn't have anything to do with children or you know parenthood but again that was really unusual so that's why we like when we see films like that we like to get the, the you know the, the people involved on to talk through why they made that decision and talk about how we need more of it really yeah because in a movie it's almost like a man is allowed to be a bad father but someone who's exactly. a bad mother Ooh, i think yeah. there was a there was a bad mother in it's tv it's not movies in picard the Star Trek spin-off. There's one of the characters there was portrayed as a bad mother. And I think it's the first time I've seen that kind of thing with, without them being a bad person as well. She was seen yeah. as a very, as a positive person. She was, she was like the number two in command of the, the, the spaceship, but she yeah. was, she was a bad mother. or she had a, a, a bad relationship with her child, with her grown up daughter. Yeah. 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 I mean women are not allowed to do that on the big screen very much and if they are they're generally judged or they're you know they're not the center of the story so it is extremely rare to see that and that's something that we're really keeping an eye on thanks for that anna anna smith part of the girls on film podcast which is at number 15 this week on the pod 20 at 14 the high performance podcast an intimate glimpse into the lives of high achieving world-class performers who have all excelled in their field with first-hand experiences and lessons to share back to the chart in a bit but let's check in with my special guest the broadcaster johnny gould so johnny gould the podcast is called johnny gould's jewish state what's the idea behind it well, uh, despite the title, it's not a campaign. Uh, it's actually a play on words. It's about the condition of myself, the state of me, um, which means that I examine great interviewees. And of course, they're not Jewish. It's not a qualification. They're from all walks of life. So it's really about kind of universal values. And the guests we've had so far in episodes one to 20, which I'm delighted were part of the inaugural lineup of podcast radio when it was just in London featured giants like Colonel Richard Kemp, uh, Baroness Ruth Deitch, the amazing Trevor Horn, uh, the uh, million-selling record producer, who was confirmed uh, in the Church of England in Durham Cathedral, but has gone to synagogue for 32 years. So you can see there's a sort of theme about this. Colonel Richard Kemp, a former um, commander of forces in uh, Afghanistan, um, is an unconditional and wavering supporter of Israel. So I asked him about that. I asked him about the geopolitical parts of, of the world where he thought the threat to our military was, about our support for America, um, and indeed about Iran. So that was in uh, Series 1, and we've got some amazing ones coming up. Now that podcast radio is national, I'm going to bring some even more big guns to, uh, to your output, Graham. So absolutely delighted to be part of it. And which guest have you personally learned the most from? Do you know what? I say to each of my guests afterwards, and it's genuinely true, 
that incrementally each one of them changes my view that they are great educators. I think the one that has had the biggest impact on me is a guy called Danny. And now I don't know his full name because that was the condition by which I could interview him. He'd never done an interview before in English. He was the Mossad commander. I believe his real name is Danny, but it's in inverted commas. I don't know what his name is. He's never done an interview before. He did one on iPhone on YouTube in Spanish, which is his sort of native language. But he was the Mossad commander who masterminded uh, the emancipation of tens of thousands of Ethiopian Jews from Sudanese refugee camps using all means. Um, passports carried through official routes, uh, giant boats, which he sailed down the Suez Canal, massive Boeing cargo planes, undercover with other Mossad commanders for from a hotel, from a diving school. Um, it was actually run as a diving school. But the miracle of this is that at night time, once they'd looked after all the hotel guests, they then went about their business. And the stories that he came up with, 700 kilometers behind enemy lines in Sudan, is an amazing story because this man saved thousands and thousands of lives. And you know the, uh, the old maxim, and it's a Jewish maxim, but it's a maxim in the Christian world as well. He who saves one life saves the world. There's an example of that. And he was just, well, okay, this was the case, but you know, it wasn't just me. He's the most humble individual with the greatest human achievement. And there are amazing stories in there. They're, they're, like, for example, he had um, black Jews because uh, they were partners. They were also Mossad commanders. He couldn't do the work that they did because, of course, the black Jews could go into the Sudanese camps where a white-skinned man could not do. So they had different jobs to do. And he tells an amazing story about how years on, one of the um, black Mossad commanders went back to Addis Ababa on business and unfortunately uh, died in the street. And he had a call late at night to say that we had to find the body. And there was a non-air-conditioned morgue with a parade of bodies in there, one of which was his brother, he called him. And another member of the team went to get him, and he was given a full military Mossad funeral, transported back to Israel from Ethiopia. Uh, and five former Mossad chief executives were at the funeral. And he said, I've never told that story before. And I couldn't edit this podcast, right? You know what? I mean, every single syllable was, I mean, heart-wrenching and emotional. And my podcasts, I try and make them 30 minutes, 40 minutes. You know, people have got a, a, a you know, a, an interest, you know, and then you know, they might switch off. But I couldn't, I, 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 people stick with it. And it's one hour and 18 minutes, and it's the longest one I've done, but I think you'll enjoy it. If Jerry allows me to have one hour and 18 minutes of a schedule, it's on. I'll talk to Jerry for you, Johnny. Johnny Gould, and the podcast is called Johnny Gould's Jewish State. This is the Pod 20, the definitive countdown of the top 20 podcasts right now. At number 13, it's Happiness Lab with Dr. Laura Santos. The Yale professor, Dr. Laura Santos, has studied the science of happiness and found that many of us do the exact opposite to what will truly make our lives better. At 12, an Englishman in 
from the media personality and publicist Rob Goldstone. Rob, your podcast is called An Englishman In, and you are an Englishman in New York, like the Sting song. Now, being an Englishman in New York, has that made you more British? Uh, it's made me more grand as well as more British because I'm from Bury. Yeah. So really, I'd like to say, give us a cup of tea, Chuck, before you can whatever. But I don't hear. I'm terribly like, do you have Earl Grey in, you know, fresh leaf tea? And it's also good to be British in America because even though it's 2020, most Americans, when you speak with a British accent, behave like it's 1753 and they go, is that a British accent? Could you speak for us? And they really are genuinely charmed and aghast that you speak with a British accent. They then, in today's world, will say things like, is where you live like Downton Abbey? Do you wear <laughs> tiaras? I mean, it really is shocking the level at which, and I like the one that I often get uh, said to me, which is, oh my God, you speak like the Prince of Wales. And I always say, I don't, and you obviously have no idea how he speaks, but... That's okay. So to me, as a kid from Manchester, it's all hilarious. Now, when I go back to England, I'm much more like, hello, Chuck, you're right. I mean, I'm not. I don't turn suddenly into Les Dawson or somebody. <laughs> but I do, um, it is a bit grand here. And, and, and a lot of my friends who are expats say the same thing, which is they become terribly hyacinth bouquet over here because it's kind of expected and it opens a lot of doors. If you need to open a door here that can't be opened, if you ever, I, I found it with customer service, I found it on phones. If you suddenly go, what a lovely day it is today. Don't you think we're having a fine summer? They'll go, is that English that you're speaking? <laughs> now it's funny because we allegedly speak the same language. But we don't. And so, yes, I, I become much more British here. The podcast, then, uh, An Englishman In. Why a podcast now after doing so many things? Journalist, best-selling author, um, publicist. You've done it all. Why a podcaster right now? Um, I toyed with the idea of doing a podcast right when I did my book, which is about two years ago now. And I actually thought no one would care. And I couldn't think of a title and I couldn't think of a reason to do it. Like I was like, I can't do a podcast. There has to be a theme, a reason. Why am I doing it? And I do think titles are really important. Uh, maybe it comes from my journalist thing, but I always write even when I pitch stories as a publicist, I always pitch them in a headline that I think will grab. So I needed something. And an Englishman in, I liked because it doesn't have a final word. And I did it because every episode has its own final word. So there's an Englishman in power, an Englishman in collusion, an Englishman in lockdown, an Englishman in Eurovision, which is one of my favorite ones. Uh, you know, an Englishman in technophobia because I don't know how to work any machinery. And I just thought each one would be theme-based and the guests would be booked, not for who they were or who they're not, but for what they could speak about. And um, once I'd started it, I understood what I wanted to do. I didn't really understand it when I first began plotting it out. But now I find them really interesting. And I find the people who I've spoken to really interesting. And I, I think people like to be, I think people like conversation. I like people like Michael Parkinson, Russell Harty, Kenneth Williams is like my idol. Because Kenneth Williams could go on anything and talk for an hour <laughs> and you'd be thoroughly entertained you may have no idea what on earth he was talking about at the end of it but you'd be entertained i don't think there's a lot that graham norton does it to some extent but i don't think 
But I like Terry Wogan more than I like Graham Norton because I think he was more interested in letting you speak. Michael Parkinson, because he'd been a journalist, he knew when to speak and when not to speak type of thing and when to let you tell the story. I think there's some great examples, David Frost, all those people. So I'm interested in people. I like what people have to say. I think that's why a person becomes a journalist. And podcasting is the natural extension to that. Um, and I hope people will like the episodes. As I say, you can pick and choose. If you like politics, there's political ones. If you like the Eurovision Song Contest, there's a hilarious one about Eurovision. And if you want to know why, you know, Bet Midler's a bitch and George Michael like rough sex. Listen to my one called In the Groove with a big music expert, and he'll tell you exactly what I just said. Um, one of my favorites is with a gossip columnist here in New York called Rob Shooter. And I asked him what advice he would give for Harry and Meghan. And his answer's hilarious. He goes, I just would say to them three things Is the palace dirty? Does the queen really like those dogs? I mean, he's hilarious. And and it's like, you know, I think people will be entertained by that because it, it, it's a bit of escapism. Um, yeah, in, 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 my, in my book, we all need a bit of that, especially in this lockdown madness. I think you're right, Rob. An Englishman in from Rob Goldstone is at number 12 this week. At 11, today in focus from The Guardian... My guest this week is the broadcaster Johnny Gould. He's the host of the podcast Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Let's talk about a scandal you weren't involved in. 2018, the FT reports that you were the host of the President's Club charity dinner at the Dorchester Hotel. The event became infamous because there were allegations that female staff uh, were, were groped and treated inappropriately. You weren't even there. Take me through what happened and the effect it had. Graham, I've had Twitter pylons now a lot over a number of things. If I've said something on Sky News that people don't like or I've said something in my role um, of the supporters trust in football that the Villa fans don't like. Occasionally I get uh, a little bit of grief, but this was far and away the worst. And it happened near midnight because of course it was in the FT and it was in the morning paper. Uh, but of course the FT releases the paper at like 10 o'clock at night. And suddenly I got at tagged from nowhere, scores and scores of times an hour. And my friend, uh, Jonathan Friedland of the Guardian, phoned me at midnight and said, listen, you need to sort this out. And I wondered what it was. And as you say, it was an article by Madison Marriage, which um, had... She was, she was an undercover journalist at the event, wasn't she? She was working as uh, a waitress there, and she had accused assorted men of, I don't know, um, pinching her bum or making passes at her, and that it was a sort of lad's night out with cigars um and it was an expose a very feminist expose i must say because there are other sides to the story a lot of these guys are just sort of harmless away from their wives talking about their kids etc going out on sort of business evenings maybe they don't want to be out but they feel part of it and maybe they can network etc um but it was an expose and it was i don't know a few thousand words but what was so damaging was the first seven words of it were open quotes. Welcome to the most un-PC event of the year, close quotes, said Johnny Gould. 
right? Which meant that anyone who drifted off having uh, read a part of it would have registered me. And there were thousands and thousands of retweets calling for my sacking at Sky News. And I thought, this is dangerous. They removed me from the schedule. You know, and it has to be said, it was Johnny Gould, but it was a different Johnny Gould. With the same spelling of the name. It, it was the celebrity auctioneer. And, um, you know, I hold no grudges against him. I think he was a bit sore from it, to be honest. But I'm pleased to say the guy who's raised, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions in charity has come back. And I phoned him up and he wasn't terribly happy with me. But it literally had nothing to do with me. The reason, the reason I took action was not against... The auctioneer, I, I've got no bone to pick with him. Mine was the clumsiness of the reporting. If they'd have said Johnny Gould, the baseball presenter and celebrity auctioneer, I would have had to suck that up. Maybe people would have still mistaken me. But the FT libeled me, the Sun libeled me, Evolve Politics libeled me, and some other organization I can't remember. And I won tens of thousands of pounds worth of damage with another guest. Uh, of the series, the famous Mark Lewis, uh, the lawyer who's been behind the uh, the Labour Party allegations. In fact, it was uh, Mark who I introduced to John Ware, the Panorama uh, documentary maker who's become a friend and was also a guest on my show over the um, uh, programme is Labour Anti-Semitic, which was run um, a few months before the general election, uh, which again, he's won damages for as well. Uh, so, um, yes, that was the President's Club. Um, it wasn't pleasant, but Mark Lewis handled it for me. Um, he took away some of the pain of it, and I lived to fight another day. And these things do, you know, do blow over, and um, it's, all, it's all sort of part of life's experience. And what did you want from that? Did you want financial compensation, or did you just want them to, I don't know, put a big retraction in or something? Um, as part of the deal, they had to put five apologies online every sort of 12 hours, and they had to put a printed apology in the FT newspaper. The Sun did the same thing and paid me uh, a compensation. Actually, some of it I gave uh, to charity because, of course, it, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of free money. It's not, it's not earned money. So it was, it was uh, like I didn't feel like I should do it. The most, I'll tell you what, the most important thing was to not get sacked by Sky News, which was a job that I really, really loved. And, and luckily, Sarah Jane Mee and um, Jonathan Samuels and a, another set of presenters, you know, put tweets out, which were really, you know, really, really humbling, actually, really nice that they should take the time and say, it's not him. He's a nice guy, really. And uh, don't sack him. And that was the end of that. And I was, I was actually in on Thursday that week. And luckily, we didn't touch on the story. I'm glad we didn't, because I just want to get on with my... My lot, it had nothing to do with me. Ironically, I was on a train, the world's longest train journey, at the time of this President's Club malarkey, coming back from my in-laws who live in Strasbourg. Now, there's no direct flight from the European capital to London, so I have to get on this train and go across French country and change at Paris with toddler children. Um, and luckily the phone didn't work, otherwise I would have been having kittens on the train. So that's where I was, that's my alibi. I was nowhere near it. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the unfortunate thing is, though, if you Google your name with the word scandal next to it, the FT article still comes up. I don't know how you get that taken down. Yeah, they've rewritten it. And actually, if you look at it, it says something in italics at the bottom saying, uh, you know, being rewritten to make clear. Um, and, you know, I've got to say something else, which is occasionally, and you can't correct this all the time, 
Johnny Gould raised, raises hundreds of thousands of pounds for amazing charities. And occasionally, famous rugby and cricket stars follow me by accident. <laughs> now, I, I mean, you know, I'm not sure whether they follow me because Johnny's a, a charity hero or because they think I'm the world's greatest broadcaster. But, you know, sometimes uh, Johnny Gould works 48 hours a day, if you know what I mean. It's as if there's two of you, Johnny. Well, having had that experience of the press i mean we've had you know obviously we've had leveson and, and other bits and pieces you know the phone hacking and that uh later on i want to find out what you think of the state of tabloid journalism in this country today this is the pod 20 i'm graham mack it's the definitive countdown of the top 20 podcasts right now we are at the midpoint we're at number 10 and fittingly the number 10 podcast this week is called the midpoint with Gabby Logan. It's not about being at number 10 on the pod 20. It's about what life means at the halfway stage of your life. Gabby talks to well-known faces about their own midlife challenges and expectations. At number nine, Hollywood and Levine from the Hollywood scriptwriter Ken Levine. Ken, growing up, you were a fan of the Dick Van Dyke show and had a crush on Laura Petrie, played by Mary Tyler Moore. Laura was married to Dick's character, who played a scriptwriter. Is that the real reason why you became a writer? Look, Graham, that's why 99% of the comedy writers get into the field. Okay. Don't kid yourself. Don't, don't kid yourself. Yeah. It's like I, I wasn't a jock. I, I didn't play music. Back in those days, if you, if you just held a guitar in your hands, you were 10% more attractive to a woman. I couldn't play a guitar, so I had comedy, and I tried to use it to my benefit. Although I look back at my high school yearbooks and all of these really pretty girls say, oh, God, it was so much fun to be in class with you. And, oh, you were so funny. And I don't think I could have gotten through trigonometry without you sitting next to me and everything. But they never went out with me. <laughs> right. At the end of the day, it's like they all say, oh, we, we want a sense of humor. No, no, they, they want the good looking Brad Pitt guy. <laughs> So how did you get into comedy writing and what was the, the sequence there? Were you in radio first and then? Yes. Right. Yes. I graduated from UCLA. Yeah. I was a disc jockey. I was a top 40 disc jockey in, oh my God, Bakersfield, San Bernardino, Detroit, New York, Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco, one time in Chicago. Um and I just got tired of playing kung fu fighting four times a night. <laughs> and I, I just reached a point where I thought to myself, is this really how I want to spend the rest of my life? Just playing Oh Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison, you know, until I'm 75. So I happened to see, it had just come out, the Woody Allen movie Sleeper. And it was like a huge epiphany. Because I'm thinking, here is this guy, and he's doing sight gags and verbal gags, and he's got a story going, and there's a whole audience of people laughing. If you go to the theater, you can actually hear people laugh. When you're on radio, you never hear the laughter. <laughs> yeah. You know, you just never hear the laughter. You have no idea whether your jokes land or not. 
And, and I thought, okay, this is what I want to do. But I had no training in writing whatsoever. And I was also at that time in an Army Reserve unit. I was in an Armed Forces Radio Reserve unit. In case we got called up, it was good morning, Vietnam. Um, but I met another guy in that unit named David Isaacs. And David was reading the a biography of George S. Kaufman, the Howard Teichman biography. And George S. Kaufman was one of my idols because I would study comedy writers who I admired, like Neil Simon, like Kaufman and Hart, uh, like Carl Reiner. Mel Brooks? Mel, oh my God, oh my God, an idol, an absolute idol. The fact that, first of all, it's not often that you see somebody on an army base reading a book but the fact that it was this book in particular, um, we started talking and he too had a desire to be a comedy writer. And um, he too had no experience whatsoever. At the time, he was working at ABC in Hollywood in the long since obsolete film department where he would ship 35 millimeter and 16 millimeter copies of shows to Hawaii and to different affiliates that weren't on the satellite. So that was his job. And I was doing six to midnight in San Bernardino. So we're in summer camp and we talked about, gee, it would be fun to try writing something sometime. And then I went home after summer camp and the radio station got sold to new owners who decided to change the format, so I got fired. This is not the first time that that has happened to me in radio. In fact, it was it was the norm. It still is. Oh, there's there's no security. No. There's no there's more security in, you know, chalk paintings <laughs> on sidewalks. <laughs> but I went back to LA to live with my parents while I sent around tapes trying to get the next radio job. And I called David. And I said, hey, I want to try writing a script. You want to write one with me? And we got together and talked about it and decided to try being partners. And we had an idea to write uh, a pilot about two college kids because we were 23 years old. And that was the sum total of our life experience. So we wrote this pilot we had no idea what we were doing. We didn't know from outlines, story structure, nothing. We wrote this thing. I, I had to go to, uh, there's a bookstore in Hollywood that, you know, most remainder tables will have books that you can buy for $2 a book. Well, this one had scripts, had TV scripts. So for $2, I was able to buy an odd couple script and a Mary Tyler Moore script. And I took those home and I looked at them and like, oh, interior Madison apartment day. That was the format. I didn't even know what the format was. So we're writing this. And the way we worked was that David would write it in longhand since he couldn't type. And then I would type up the final script. So David is writing in a binder and we're working and working and working. And finally, one day I turned to him and I said, what page do you think we're on? And he goes, uh, I don't know, about 35, 36. And I looked at the script and I said, you know, they start wrapping it up here pretty quick. So we took 10 minutes, came up with an ending, which probably would have cost 
50 million dollars <laughs> in 1973 money and we wrote it took us about a half an hour to write our wild crazy ending and the end we went out to a mexican restaurant and had margaritas we were officially writers and it might shock you to learn that that script did not sell anywhere but at the end of the day, our takeaway was that we enjoyed writing it and we enjoyed working with each other. So then, I know this is a long answer to your question. So then I came across uh, an actual TV writer who said, well, in order to break in, you have to write a spec script from an existing show that's on the air. And a spec script means just a, a sample script that you write for free. So the show that David and I really admired the most was the Mary Tyler Moore show. This was the early 70s. This was 1973. And there were no real books on TV comedy writing. Neither of us had taken any courses in it to speak of. So what we decided to do was every Saturday night when the Mary Tyler Moore show was on, I would hold a microphone up to the speaker we had a little cassette recorder, and we made an audio recording of the episode. Then we would go back, listen to it, and write an outline based on the show. And we did that week after week after week. And then we started comparing them and seeing the patterns and figuring out exactly what kind of stories they told and how they told them and various things like that. And then we set off and wrote our spec episode of the Mary Tyler Moore Show. And so to this day, I say, you know, the fact that I didn't have a girlfriend and I had nowhere to go on Saturday night, it allowed me to, <laughs> to, to have a writing career. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, yeah? <laughs> yeah, exactly. If I was getting late on Saturday night, it's like, I, I don't know what I'd be doing today. <laughs> I'd be playing Kung Fu Fighting on Radio Caroline. Right. Ken Levine's Hollywood and Levine is at number nine this week. At number eight, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition from Comedy Central's Podcast Network. My guest this week is Johnny Gould, the broadcaster and host of the podcast Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Johnny, we talked earlier about how the UK press mistook you for a different Johnny Gould and all the trouble that caused. What do you think of the standard of tabloid journalism in the UK right now? I think Rupert Murdoch did us all a favour by getting rid of the news of the world. Uh, I think he understood that it was toxic. Um... I, I mean, the Sun had its issues through the years, obviously. I won't have a bad word said about him, really, honestly. I think, I think I'm quite a unique journalist in that way because, I mean, he brought, he's, he's a swashbuckler. Uh, Sir Alan Sugar, or Lord Sugar, I should say, said so on that profile of the murder. So a lot of journalists don't like him. But what he's brought to journalism overall, apart from the sort of scurrilous stories, which are a bit unpleasant, um, is, is, is a kind of new kind of football. It might be over now. Uh, a different kind of football is required. A different kind of monetization of football is required. The business model has changed, but he changed football forever and for the better, I think, um, over 25 years. I think it's become a little bit fat and lazy, and there's only five clubs who can win the Premier League now. But that's to do with the governance of the football and not to do with uh, Rupert Murdoch. He's made the right decisions. His instincts were right to get rid of the news of the world. Um, the sun has changed. 
its power has changed because, of course, tabloids have changed. You know, the idea of being able to sort of, you know, turn the lights off if you're the last, uh, you know, Labour voter or whatever. Those days of actually picking the government may have changed for good. Social media is absolutely enormous and, um, you know, it's affecting everything. The BBC stands on its own with hardly any reform at all, apart from uh, less money being given to it by the, by the government and via licence fee payers. Uh, but it will have to change because uh, terrestrial television, for want of a better description, which isn't an accurate description anymore, must change. There are so many good things about the BBC, but not all of it. And um, we need to be we, we need a network who's talking peace to its people. And there have been too many controversies uh, around the BBC where I'm afraid a peace is not being spoken to us. Right. What that it's got that left leaning bias that uh, yeah, it's accused it's, of. It's bare naked, actually, in some. And, and, and the sadness is that the BBC is such a, a giant cultural force. So you have, you know, for those of us who've got young kids like me, CBBS. What a great channel. Okay. That is the BBC classic sort of programming of, of old with great presenters and great morals, great ethics. You know that you can leave the kid in front of the television for hours with CBBS and know it's safe. You've got beautiful ideas like Friday Night is Music Night, the, the Philharmonic Orchestra, absolutely beautiful concepts, the Natural History Unit. But you try and watch uh, the news and current affairs output. It is, it's a disgrace. It's, it's appalling. The news channels are, not all of them, okay, because you can't, you, you, you can't sort of brushstroke everyone, but, um, you know, to be lectured and to be told what's what is bringing down the reputation of the sort of the, 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 um, the good minded sort of uh, people of the BBC, which, which, is how, which is how I remember uh, my association with the BBC. I'm not afraid to say these things. What about the, say, the journalistic pillars of the BBC? I'm talking, say, Panorama and Today Show. Are they still in good shape? Newsnight is a bit of a clique. Um, since Paxman left, it's, um, uh, it's, it's, it's not got the resources or the trust. I don't think it has the trust uh, with its audience anymore. I think Hugh Edwards is a very trustworthy chap, the way he sits there like that with a lovely haircut, lost a bit of weight. I like Hugh, actually. He's a very, he's a, honestly, he is a great presenter. Uh, the Today programme has lost its way since Humphreys has gone. I, I know people want to get rid of him, but there were left-leaning people who wanted to get rid of him. Um, and, and I think Tim Davey has a job. That Royal Britannia thing, what a disgrace. What an absolute disgrace. How dare they? It's the proms. Give it to ITV. If they're going to do that, give it to ITV. Yeah, yeah. Does, uh, you know, broadcasting in this country is quite, commercial broadcasting, is quite heavily regulated uh, via Ofcom. Do, do you think that newspapers need to be regulated in the same way after your experience? I think the way that regulation of impartiality um, has been is almost obsolete. You know, we're seeing changes now, aren't we? We're seeing um, Sir Robbie Gibb being finally confirmed as out there as setting up a, a right of centre news organisation because quite simply um, it's required. Sky News has moved to the left since the uh, sale of Murdoch organized of, of, of Sky News. They've got to find a new business model to make it work with the Premier League's revenues probably sort of flatlining now, although it is at a massive, at a massive level. Um, 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 impartiality is, 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 is problematic because in this world of schismatic ideologies, 
you know, if you're impartial to balance the views of terrorists, then that's not impartiality. Well, the BBC got caught out with the uh, the MMR vaccine people, didn't it? And, uh, yeah. You, I mean, climate change is another one that you've got to be... Yeah, it's problematic. I've had, I've had friends um, bullied by, you know, the ivory towers at uh, W1A, 1AA for questioning it. Um, because actually, you have to, you can't have... Well, we should question everything, really. It's, it's healthy debate, yeah. BBC policy is that we accept uh, that climate change exists, okay. But that doesn't mean to say that some of the people who deny it, or whatever their position is, are bonkers. You know, we can't say it exists. They are lumped in with the flat earthers, aren't they? When, yeah. when, when all they need to do is question things now and again so that we are getting the right information so we can find the right solutions. And the BBC have made a, a terrible decision. This is going back to Jolly Gold's Jewish state. Uh, to say that the policy is to accept a two-state solution. I mean, the UAE have done a peace deal with Israel based on the end of the Oslo Accords, the fact that the Oslo Accords didn't work, that it was an attempt to make peace, which is now over. It's finished. The two-state solution, as discussed in the Oslo Accords idea, is over. And that, 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 that deal between the Gulf states, and it won't just be UAE, now it'll be Oman and Bahrain, is part of a new idea where Donald Trump's deal of the century will force the Palestinians to the table, whereas the Oslo Accords, in simple terms, sued Israel for peace, tried to get Israel to go for peace. And as it turned out, Israel didn't have reliable peace partners. So as Mark Regev told me in one of the episodes, the former ambassador to the UK, where I interviewed him at uh, the Kensington Israeli em um, embassy, he said um, the Palestinian rejectionism must come to an end and Israel must not be held back in its development by the no, no, a thousand times no. So when the BBC talk about uh, the two state solution, uh, you know, being a, the accepted uh, policy that we should follow and then we take all our broadcasting from there, I'm afraid uh, that's a, 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 a cause for great bias and not the impartiality that they think they should be presenting to the audience. Is, is impartiality even possible? Because everybody has a, an opinion. Everybody is, is, is it maybe time to just say, okay, we're not impartial. This is where we stand and just be open about the, the lack of impartiality and at least to be honest. You know what? At sports media, we localized bulletins so that we deliberately veered them to the area in which we broadcast. So, for example, if it was Oxford United against York City, we'd be cheering on Oxford United on Fox FM and we'd be doing quite the opposite on Minster. You know what I mean? Because that's local radio. And of course, in those days, when you were dealing with independent stations, competing as they were with the same music as Radio 1 and Radio 2, they wanted us to be distinct. So as you say, impartiality is, is a difficult thing. You know, you have to set editorial parameters, but that, notwithstanding that, you do, Graham, I think we both agree on this, you have to permanently ask questions. Because as a species, if we don't ask questions, we're never going to advance. Yeah, yeah. Well, you ask plenty of great questions in the podcast. 
Johnny, see what I did there? Johnny Gould's Jewish State. It's out now. You can hear it on podcast radio. Don't miss it. It's available on all the usual podcast platforms, your uh, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and TuneIn and everywhere else. Yeah, Spotify, all those. Good stuff. Johnny Gould, thank you very, very much for your time. Graham, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's the Pod 20, the definitive countdown of the top 20 podcasts, and we're up to number seven on the chart, which is No Such Thing as a Fish, the award-winning podcast from the QI office. At six, BJ Shea's Geek Nation, hosted by Seattle radio personality BJ Shea. Seattle, very, very competitive radio market. Your show was up against the Bob Rivers show. Yeah, and he and Bob Rivers, uh, uh, he's he's retired now. Had a gigantically successful career, and Seattle was one of the places he was that he was really great in. Um, ironically, coincidentally, I don't know the quite word. We should ask Alanis, Alanis Morissette about what ironic means. But the idea that he brought me to town, and I run, I'll never forget this, Graham. He was my friend for many years. Saw him at all those conventions. He brought me to Seattle. He recommended that I get the job to do middays. And then he left the company and worked for the competing company in Seattle. And I remember him saying this when he first brought me to town. He goes, I'm going to bring you to town because you're a good guy. You need a break. I think I can learn from you. But I know that you're going to beat me in the rating someday. But I'm going to still bring you to town anyway. But at the time, Graham, I had no job. I couldn't get a job. And when I got hired there, it was midday. So I thought he was insane. I go, what do you mean I'm going to beat you in the ratings? You're this big morning show. I, I can't even get a job in this business. And uh, many years later, lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. He, he called me up and he said, hey, uh, why did I get you this job as I had <laughs> gone to number one and beat him in the ratings? Um, but a man, I, I couldn't believe in that moment, well, if he really knew that would be true, which it ended up being true, that he was still gracious enough to give me this opportunity knowing that I would supplant him, which yeah. I don't, I would like to think that yeah. I would be kind enough to do so, but I don't think I'm at Alan Alda status. I don't think I would, I, don't, I probably would just step on that poor person and go, yeah, sorry you're out of a job and you're not coming here. No way, buddy. That's not happening. And when you say you were out of a job, you were out of a job because you'd just been fired for doing something naughty, right? Um, you know, I've been fired so many times. You, you're going to have to be more specific. Um, well, <laughs> this is the thing. I think what you're referring to is when... I got the job that Bob got me and then I got fired. So I was only here for four months. Bob recommended me and then I got fired and that made Bob look really bad. Um, but I was before coming but to what was Seattle. It you, did? You, you did something, didn't you? You didn't just get, yes, people get fired. I, um, and I, I, irrit- I, 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 there was a, there was a wonderful program uh, on one of, uh, on HBO and uh, the Christians, uh, it was an LGBTQ plus program. Uh, it was uh, Chloe Savini. And um, why do I always forget this woman's name? She was a million dollar baby. Uh, great actress. And anyway, they had this. Uh, well, Boys Don't Cry, I think, was the name of the, 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 the movie. And well, Christians were up in arms. And so I was very, very just mean and said angry things, could have said them a lot better towards Christians. That raised the ire of some people in the community, much to the point that they petitioned me gone. Uh, and it, uh, it worked sort of, um, I was gone for a short time, but I also petitioned myself back with the company said, Hey, look, you know, how about you give a kid a chance? <laughs> um, 
<laughs> you know what? I'll be nicer to the Christians this time. Um, and I think because of the fact that Seattle is the most underchurched city in our country for the most part, at least it was back then, that eventually the company realized eh, maybe it was really a very small amount of voices. And when they listened to the whole show, they realized I was championing, I was really championing the LGBT plus community, which of course is really big in Seattle. And yeah. so they were like, yeah, maybe we should, we should probably, maybe we're on the wrong side of this after all. Maybe we should bring him back because he was actually championing a very, you know, loved and respected community. And so I got the job back. Yeah. So uh, that was, that was fortunate. That's so my how agent long? recommended. No, no. <laughs> boys and girls. Yeah. Um, so how long have you lived in, in Seattle now, Seattle, Washington? Uh, celebrated my 20th year uh, this past November. So you'd know the city quite well. One thing I always find interesting, I've been to Seattle and it's a lovely city. It's great. Is that it is, as you say, polite and there's nice people. And, but when it comes to protests and riots, you do like a rumble. You know, Graham, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. There are people that really believe that there is this small section of, of just troublemakers that will go where there's a large crowd and make it look like that the crowd is the, is the reason for the, the problems. And having been here, um, what's really sad about these protests is that they really, really were very well done. And the leaders of these protests were actually very articulate, very friendly. At, at one point, they were sharing a stage with our mayor, and the mayor was, everybody was really reasonable in the midst of this social chaos that was going on. And it's sad that, you know, you know how news is, if it leads, it bleeds. They would focus on this group of people whom I'm not really sure were caring at all about what was going on. I think that if we had won the World Series with our baseball team, those same group of people would come and break windows and ruin things. I, I, and that, that's really been what folks have thought is that I don't think this is the protesters because I would say 99% of the protesters were very peaceful, very reasonable. And I mean, their message is an important message. So I, I, I don't think that they would want to really mar it with really criminal and violent behavior because that would mitigate what they're trying to say, which is pay attention to the message. We don't want you to pay attention to the broken windows. The message is more important than that. Um, and I, so I believe that it's not Seattleites. I, and some people don't even think they're from here. A lot of these folks that come wearing their masks, causing problems, I believe they just want people to be afraid. Whoever this small group of people is, is, you know, human beings, if you're afraid, then you can be manipulated. Mm. And I believe whatever, I don't know what their, you know, I don't know what their agenda is, but their agenda is not the same agenda for the folks that want social change. I know that because that's just not what you do, you know, and that's what 99, and 99% and of the folks involved in that didn't do that. And it's unfortunate that Seattle looks the way it looks especially when different news organizations were posting fake pictures and even pictures from other cities claiming, uh, you know, oh, hey, this is what's going on in Seattle. And my, my relatives are like, oh, my God, it's a war zone. I'm like, that picture's from Minnesota. Don't even believe that. That's not even us. Yeah. And then Fox, Fox News had to come out and say, whoops, sorry. Did we do that? It doesn't help when the big one, I mean, it's a long time ago now, the one around about 2000 is referred to as the Battle of Seattle. Mm. I mean, that mm. doesn't help. And then... 
Didn't you have a police chief? Didn't you have a large protest outside her residence the other night? Yes, um, and that's un- which is unfortunate because I feel like she's been very reasonable. Um, very, very reasonable. You know, again, from my position, I, I really, you know, I have, I, I'm not, you know, I don't know at all. I mean, I live my life. Who am I? But I feel like the police chief has been very reasonable and the mayor has been very reasonable. Uh, and yet it, you know, depending upon whom you talk to, I think everybody's a little, I think everybody's just a little up on the, uh, anxiety level uh and how do you handle that on the air do you do you reflect it the way you just did then saying it's these these are not the real people with the issue these are just a a handful of troublemakers it's just an interesting thing because my job you know is 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 to take the company edict whatever and 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 they know what they want the station to be and they know what they want this you know what to be broadcast out of their speakers and we have probably as many people who are for one issue, we have as many people who are also against that issue. We're 50-50 split when it comes to our listeners. So, so like Graham, what do, you, <laughs> what do you do? Yeah, what do you do yeah. when you know that, you know, you've got red state, blue state? It's really insane. The numbers are crazy when we take a look at the, the stats. 50% of the people are conservative. 50% of the people are, are, are liberal. And yet they like us, which I think is great. That's yeah. to me, I look at it like, boy, wouldn't it be great if the country was like this, that everybody could agree on one thing uh, like they agree on our show. So that does put us in a difficult position. No matter what I say, if I take a side, I'm going to irritate 50% yeah. of the audience. Yeah. So I walk a line of, it's my line is I, I don't believe any politician. I don't like the system. I don't like politics. I don't like that these representatives are are skillionaires. That wasn't what it was meant to be in our country. It's supposed to be the average Joe doing the work for the average Joe. And that's not what it is. And I am not going to be fooled by putting a letter on my chest saying, I'm on this team, so I know we're in good shape. I really will not fall for that. I am a person that wants to do the best for the people and whoever I believe will do that. I don't care what party you're with. I don't care what you're doing. If I believe you're doing the best for the people, then you got my vote. And right now there's not a lot of people in my country who I think are doing the best for the people. And it saddens me. So I I take that approach, Graham. And that way, if they, if they can all be wanting to be mad, but I'm not saying they're bad. they're, Their person's bad. I'm saying, look, I think they're all really kind of, in cahoots and there may be some good people splintered here and there but what could they do in a system that's you know that basically is systemically corrupt how do you how do you take your soul if you're a good politician and operate in a system that might be just massively corrupt i don't know yeah you just got to look at the word politics poly comes from the latin for many and then ticks blood-sucking parasites BJ Shays, Geek Nation, is at number six this week. And BJ will be back next week to talk about why he regards being a radio presenter as the same as being an actor. We're into the top five now, and it looks like this. At number five, Freakonomics Radio, the hidden side of everything with Stephen J. Daubner, co-author of the Freakonomics books. Number four, Rob Beckett and Josh Widdicombe's Lockdown Parenting Hell. It's parenting just not as you know it. Number three, 
the Joe Rogan Experience. Joe's latest guest is Frank Von Hippel, an expert in the study of how pollutants impact human health and the environment at large. At number two, and straight in at number two, which is quite an achievement, it's I Can't Believe It's Not Buddha. Lee Mack has had a long interest in Buddhism mindfulness and the possibility of leading a more spiritual life. After years of dabbling in meditation, he feels the time has come to decide once and for all whether he should seriously seek spiritual enlightenment. I Can't Believe It's Not Buddha is a new podcast which finds Lee and his friend Neil taking their first, often clumsy, steps on the road to Nirvana from picking which type of Buddhism to follow, to contemplating what a woodland creature would say if you asked it the time. I can't believe it's not Buddha, straight in at number two, only being held off the top spot for the fourth week at number one. Shagged, married, annoyed. With Chris and Rosie Ramsey. That's it for episode 22 of The Pod 20. I'm Graham Mack and thanks to this week's guest podcasters, Johnny Gould, Saruti Bala, BJ Shea, Ken Levine, Anna Smith and Rob Goldstone. If you'd like to watch extended video chats with all of my guests, check them out on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Next week's special guest is the voice of Tony the Tiger, Tom Clark Hill, and he's part of a cartoon podcast called Spanner and Spoon. Tom, you're also a musician, and you worked as a bass player in Boston. And you regularly played at a venue that was run by some interesting characters. It was owned by uh, Joey Sr. and his brother Frankie Sr. and their other brother Johnny Sr. All ending with and- a Y. And then the guys that would run it was Joey Jr. Uh, and and uh, and Johnny Jr. and Frankie Jr. And there was six Lincoln Continentals parked out in the in the car park until uh, until Joey Joey Jr. got a push because he thought he was a hot uh, whatever you know. And um, I think one time uh, Joey Jr. Uh, there was a bunch of waitresses and and I was there you know, moving some musical equipment or something and he said some something smart to me to make me look bad in front of these girls you know and, and because of my sarcasm and and uh, mocking ability I just kind of came back with some little zinger I forget what it was and he looked at me and he goes how'd you like to walk around on a couple of stumps and I thought it was like you know whoa this is real you know. <laughs> I'm from Northern California. This is like the Godfather or something, you know? Or, yeah. uh, or an episode of Wise Guys. Gorsese's you know? going to shout went, cut any went, minute uh, now. Sorry, Mr. Caruso. Excuse me. You know, and I kind of just like skulked off. And um, another time, uh, there was a guy that was causing a lot of trouble. He was obviously uh, had a drink problem as well. And he was in a blackout and was like stumbling in and out of the parties in the front bar causing trouble. And I just remember the old man looking over at this big Irish dude named Patty. And he just goes, Patty. That's all he did. He goes like that. Next thing you know, they, they drag this guy outside and Patty's hit him with a chair. And the guy's out, passed out in the snow. And an ambulance pulls up and they go to pick this. They put this guy, you know, and bundle him into the ambulance. And they come inside and they go, uh, Mr. Caruso, what happened to this gentleman? They go, he goes, 
I think he slipped on the ice <laughs> on the sidewalk. <laughs> and they said, okay, and left. Right. That was it. But that they knew. That they, was the, that was the police and the ambulance. Yeah, go, yeah, I think he slipped and fell on the sidewalk. You know, <laughs> and, it, and I thought I better watch myself around here and be a good boy. Tom Clark Hill, my special guest next week on the Pod Twenty, and what will happen on the podcast chart? Will Chris and Rosie Ramsey still be shagged, married, annoyed for a fifth week? Maybe your favorite podcast will be at number one. Find out with me, Graham Mack, and influence the chart by making a recommendation at thepodcastradio.co.uk. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.